So I hope that we'll have a little bit of time to interact, because the question at the end is, how do I apply this? Who is this valid for? To do acute medical care, or to what would the nurses be doing? Because the last team that we went on, I've done it both ways. I've been on the typical, with, uh, with Mission to the World, with their disaster relief ministry. And I've gone on the teams that are the straight medical brigades. Well, basically, we have a nurse doing the triage in preparation for the doctor, and then we're giving out the medications and have a counselor on the side. And those are very effective. I've also been on teams that are more community-based, where we're going not so much to give all the care as to train up the local people in the health skills so that they can carry on. And most nurses are very effective at that. So whichever way you want. Dr. Jim Lindgren will be giving another talk on disaster relief later, but his will be repeated on Saturday morning. So you would have a chance to go to both of those. Or you can go to his now if you think. I think he's giving one now at the same time. All right. Avoid the beam of the projector. We'll go ahead and get started. Got some great music going. All right. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. How's that your Spanish? Buenas tardes. Ah. I said, yeah, muy bien. Otra vez. Buenas tardes. Hey, you're coming on. We'll give the rest of the talk in English if it's okay with you. <laughs> Hope you don't mind too badly. If anyone here is here for a talk on emergency dentistry, you're in the wrong location. Somehow our descriptions got mixed up, and the dentist is giving a talk on disaster preparedness and response, and I'm giving the talk on emergency dentistry, but wouldn't be very effective at that one. So I think that's down the hallway in room 231. My name is Jody Collins. By background, I'm a pediatrician with a subspecialty in tropical medicine, I work with the Global Chain Network in the Ministry of Community Health Evangelism, and I'm in charge of curriculum development there. 
I also have worked with Medical Ambassadors International, who has the same focus, and with Mission to the World. And much of my experience in disaster relief has been with disaster relief teams that were sent out by Mission to the World. That's enough about me. Let's turn the lights off. And our topic for this hour or 45 minutes is how can the church, oh my, I may need a little bit of light here. <coughs> Any other small lights? Well, if I... uh, that's pretty light, light. Let me see if I can do it this way then. Okay, so how can the church and community be prepared for and respond to disasters? As you can see, there are many types of disasters. Some of them occur suddenly. Others have a slow onset. Some are a result of natural events. Others are technological or man-made so what do you conclude from this? We know that not all disasters are unexpected. Some occur either repeatedly or have a slow onset. Some disasters may build up over a period of months to years. Some disasters, not all disasters, are a result of natural forces they may be a result of human actions or human technology. What would be an example of a recent disaster that had a human technology component to it? Reactors in Japan. In Japan, right. And in that case, the reactors grew to become almost a greater problem than the initial disaster. Okay. So the conclusion from this is that we can often impact or influence the impact of disasters. Oops, I just went to home. Sorry about that. We'll go back to... I guess if I keep my finger on the right button, I'm okay. Okay. I went in 2009 to Bangladesh. And here you see the view from a seaplane of the country of Bangladesh after a cyclone with major flooding. But in Bangladesh, this is no surprise. It's located in a river delta area. The average altitude is less than 12 meters, and 10% would be flooded if the sea level rose by one meter. So therefore, flooding is common. So, one question that we have to ask is, what is a disaster? And we're going to look at a couple of different models of disasters. This is the crunch model, and this says that a disaster occurs when there's a combination of a major hazard combined with people or an area that's vulnerable. Here's another variation on that. We have a major hazard of vulnerable conditions 
both work together to create a disaster, but the risk of disasters can be lowered as the capacity of the people is increased. So one major focus here is how can we be prepared for disaster? How can we reduce the risk of disasters? Who can tell me the answers from this chart? What were three things that we could do from this diagram to reduce the risk of disasters? Okay, identify the hazards and decrease them if possible. Another? Increasing capacity. Increase the capacity of the people or conversely decrease their vulnerability. Okay. So, back to Bangladesh. What are some of the vulnerabilities of the people of Bangladesh? We said they live at a low altitude. There's deforestation and erosion, so the waters aren't held back. Every year there's a monsoon season with heavy rains. Because of their low altitude, they're very vulnerable to climate change. There aren't many resources. There's a lot of poverty. And to complicate all that, there's arsenic in the soil that can contaminate the water. Hazards, high rains, cyclones, tornadoes, and every year the snow on the Himalayas melts that cause a high meltwater. And that results in a high risk of flooding every year. So the two questions here are, how can we reduce these vulnerabilities and how can their capacity to cope with hazards be increased? Another myth about disasters is we tend to think of disasters as a disastrous event. And a disaster isn't a single event. Any disaster is followed by a period of relief, which hopefully goes on to restoration and rebuilding, but then the people can work together to reduce their risks and be prepared, better prepared in the future. Here's another way to describe the same thing. The red area, the actual disaster, is a small proportion of the time that's followed by recovery, leading to mitigation, leading to disaster preparedness. So, let's look a little bit more at those four stages. What is the emergency response? What is the relief? That is meeting the immediate basic needs. Often when we send a disaster relief team, this is their focus. This is what the NGOs are coming to do. We're trying to rescue people, keep them from dying, keep them healthy, and give them enough food and water and hygiene at the very beginning. The harder phase is often recovery or rehabilitation. How do we take these people who've been homeless for a period of time and restore them in their own homes? How do we rebuild their community? Mitigation means what can we do to reduce the impact of hazards on a community? We know that every year Bangladesh is prone to flooding. 
how can we reduce the harm done from those heavy rains and that flooding? And fourth is emergency preparedness. What can we do at the last minute to be prepared for a hazard? Now, one question. Many of you, we tend to think of disaster relief as something done by whom? Done by the government, done by the NGOs, done by the teams that rush in to respond after a disaster. And that's, those are all important components. But as we see here, the church and the community can be involved in all the phases, from mitigation to preparedness to response to disaster and to recovery. So here you can see some of the same ideas in pictorial form of actions the church could be involved with or the community could be involved with. Okay. Disaster mitigation refers to reducing the impact of hazards on a community. As we said before, that can be done by decreasing the vulnerability, increasing their capacity, or reducing their hazards. But what do we need to know in order to mitigate a disaster, what information do we need to find out? Turn those statements inside out and tell me what are the, some of the things we want to know. If we want to decrease their vulnerabilities, what do we need to know? Okay, who is vulnerable? What areas are vulnerable? Where are their weak spots? Where is a disaster likely to hit? In order to increase their capacities, what do we need to know? What are their strengths? What have they already built up? What are some ways that they're already prepared to respond to disasters, and how can we increase that? And the third one of reducing the hazards probably is the one that we have the least control over. Okay, so we need to know their vulnerabilities. We know how to need to know how to build up their capacities, and we need to know the hazards that occur in this area. All right. One way to assess this, that a community can be involved in finding out both about those vulnerabilities and those capacities, is through risk mapping. First, they create a map. And then they map out what are the areas at risk. What areas at risk do you see here? Is it too small to read? couple areas that are at risk of um, flooding and one area where there might be landslides. But along with mapping the community uh, mapping the risk, they also map the community resources. Here you see some resources. There's one area where there's a good water supply. There's another area with a church with a strong building that can be used for emergency housing. There are people who have specific skills and other, uh, and also people who can help with transportation in the area. So after we know what the risks are, we can take steps to reduce the risks. And after we know what the 
community resources are or capacities are, they can take steps to increase those capacities. This approach is called participatory assessment of disaster risk. Who's doing this assessment? Who could be doing the mapping of the community or the mapping of the area? These are the residents. These are all low-tech methods that the people of the community, of the church, can be involved in doing. On their timeline, they can show natural events, like when is planting season, when's our normal harvest time. But also they can show when are we most likely to have flooding, when do the cyclones hit. Some events can't be mapped out like that, but some can be predicted. In many cultures, information is passed along by folk songs and drama and stories about what they've done in the past and how they've responded. Who knows what a Venn diagram is? Can you tell us? No, okay, I'll talk up. We're using circles to represent relationships, and the arrows or lines show what are the different um, connections between the different groups in the community. Where is the school? Where is the church? Where are the people who have skills? How is the local government involved? So those all give an idea of who can we depend on when there is a disaster. What can we turn to? Another approach that I did that before. Excuse me, I'm going to go back. Oh, that was the timeline. Okay. The timeline, the difference here, the timeline showed when there were disasters in the past over a period of years. A seasonal calendar concentrates on one year. And this is what would show the seasons or the times of planting or the times of the rainy season when they're at risk. Excuse me, I did that again. Pardon me. You're going to get a rapid review here. Got to keep my finger on that button. Okay. A transect walk is walking from one extreme of the community to the other. And what would you be looking for on a transect walk? What would you like to observe? What buildings are built on high ground, so they're going to resist flooding. What buildings are built strongly so that an earthquake won't affect it. Where are there safe sources of water? Where are there people at risk? People who live right on the edge of the water or in a low area that's often flooded or in houses that aren't very strong. That's one form of direct observation. You can also use photographs to show you the same information. Historical maps shows what was this like community like in the past? What was this area of Sri Lanka like before the tsunami hit? And how has it changed today? A focus group is a group of people focusing on a specific topic. Have any of you done ranking or 10 beads, 10 seeds approach? 
This is where people from a community are using beans or seeds to vote. And they're coming together and saying, what issue is the most important to us? What type of hazard occurs most frequently? Which is most severe? Which is most costly? Why do you want people in the community working together on this? That's the way you get a lot of participation. You get them thinking it out. They're t trying to decide what steps to take and what their priorities are. All right. So through this, we're looking for strengths or capacities of the community, both individual, social, physical, or economic. How are the fishing boats? A resource? If there's flooding, that's a way that people can get to safety. All right. And here is, are some results of a survey showing what buildings or communication or transport or preparation there are for floodings or what the source of the water is. What's going to motivate a community to go to all this work? If they had a prior disaster, they've been through this before. Last year they got clobbered and they lost their nephew or niece in the disaster. Now they're more motivated to move ahead. All right. So what happens, for example, in Bangladesh when there is the flooding? There are a lot of drownings. There may be a loss of life. There's damage to the house. The crops are destroyed. And so each of these steps to work on disaster preparedness can help to reduce the risks. Okay. What would you do? Let me pose a question. You know the risks in Bangladesh. You know some of their vulnerabilities. What vulnerabilities could be reduced in Bangladesh. What would you do if you knew you had had severe flooding there last year? Or what could the local community and the local church do? Reforestation, right? Any other ideas? Levies. Pardon me? Levies to prevent the flooding. Anything else? Teach them to wash their hands. And that would be an example of increasing their capacities. Right. Okay. Here's some ideas for reducing their vulnerabilities. Brick houses resist flooding. Levees or embankments help prevent flooding. Planting trees reduces erosion. Sometimes we can protect the wells or place them up higher so they're not as likely to be contaminated. Some immediate steps are listening for cyclone warnings or preparing an escape route. What they did in Bangladesh, actually, is in some of the areas where they had the highest land, they built large buildings that were built out of concrete. And the bottom floor was used for community services. That was the area that they cooked or they took care of the community needs. The second floor was used where families could sleep for emergency housing. And on the top floor, 
they used for catchment of rainwater, which was used for emergency supply of water. Capacities we'd want to know. We talked about teaching about hygiene. Anything else they'd want to know to be able to respond better to a disaster? Here are some. We talked about the participatory assessment. We also call that PLA in other forms. They can learn ways to purify water. They can learn first aid or health skills. Often the greatest need immediately after a disaster is for counseling. Everybody's been through a tremendous shock, and there's often no one to listen, no one to hear their story, no one to unload the burden that they're under. Uh, we talked about building shelters, water catchment system, and some crops are more resistant to flooding than others are. Other steps, immediate steps prior to a disaster, early warning system, emergency escape route, plans, emergency rations. If, you're, if you knew that your house was going to have severe flooding, we just went through this in upstate New York, and that the flooding would arrive in 12 hours, what steps would you take? What would you want to protect? Some of it is your valuables. What, what are the, what's the minimum amount that you can take with you? Or what can we put in a high location so it's not likely to be hurt? How can we take care of our animals or our pets or our cattle if there is flooding? So here's the disaster cycle again that we've looked at already. What we've talked about so far is mitigation. How do we reduce the impact of a hazard on a community? Preparedness. How do we prepare? What are the emergency preparation steps? Now, this is the part where most of you are probably most familiar. How do we respond? What kind of relief can we give? How can we meet the immediate basic needs? And recovery. How can we go on to rebuild the community? Recovery is often the hardest step. I was in Sri Lanka. People were displaced from their homes. They were living in the little tent camps. Um, and after they got settled there, each day the government came in. They brought food. They brought water. They had health care. They gave them their medical supplies, their basic supplies. What's the challenge going to be? People get accustomed to living like that. They had to go back and get up the nerve to go back and live where their house had been destroyed, where their fishing business had been devastated. So how do we move on from the time of an acute disaster on to recovery and community development? What are some advantages that the local church has in responding to a, a disaster? How is the church better equipped than the government or the NGO, particularly in the immediate hours after a disaster? They're right there, right? They don't have to travel any great distance. They don't have to ship in supplies. They're right there. 
Any other things? Any other advantages that they have? They know the people. And more than knowing the names of the people, what else do they know? Okay. The skills, the personality, the resources of the people. Anything else that the church has that they might be able to share or help with immediately after a disaster? Counseling. Counseling. And what do we have that that the government can't usually share. We can share our hope in Christ. And many times immediately after a disaster, people are very open to hear about Christ. Okay. So they can respond immediately. They know the people. They know the community. They know their resources. Most churches have a group of people who are available, who are willing to help. And they can share their hope in Christ. They may have other things that are, are useful as well. One advantage, what's a, resi- what's a risk after disaster relief? After Haiti, when they've been so decimated by an earthquake that everything is destroyed. What situation do you often, does that often lead to? People can become accustomed to receiving from outsiders. They can become dependent on outside help. They can say, we'll just wait for the government to take care of us. So one of the advantages of building local solutions is that it helps to prevent that type of dependency. Okay. Can the church do it alone? What do you think? If we've just had a major disaster, an earthquake in Haiti, can the church do it alone? What kind of problems do they have? Okay. Often their own churches, their own houses, their own families have been impacted. Beyond that, any other limitations? They just don't have the resources. They might, may have the food to share for a few days. They can open up their church for an emergency shelter. But that's not going to last forever. So the church can work alongside the NGOs and alongside the government. They probably don't also have the trauma specialists and the physicians to give the acute medical care either. Okay. We're usually going to need outside help. Their own homes may be destroyed. They can't do everything. But often they can respond more rapidly than an NGO to meet immediate needs. And they can provide services that the NGO isn't going to be able to do. And so very often the church or the community are working alongside other relief efforts. All right. Here's an example. In the area north of Manila, there's an area called Typhoon Alley. They have typhoons regularly so that often their communities are flooded. Not to the same extent every year, but it's something they go through more than once. 
What are some of the immediate basic needs that people have, people who are displaced from their homes? What kind of needs do they have? Food, shelter, water, health care. Okay. Emergency housing. After a little bit, they're going to need some income. And often they're really shook up, and just the issue of safety and security is an immediate need. They have health needs. They're going through grieving, their stress. Their children aren't able to go to school. Their children may be sick. And they may not have access to transportation. And as we said before, this may be a time when they recognize their need for Christ. How can the local church be involved in response to disasters? This is a church from outside of Manila. The church was located a little ways away from the worst area where the flooding hit. But it was a fairly large church. They said, we want to reach out. We just don't have all the skills to do it. So they came together and met trying to decide on what can we do? How can we be involved? Which areas are the most heavily affected? Where should we concentrate our efforts? In this case, the church didn't provide emergency shelter in their church building because they were too far away for the people to reach. But some emergency housing was uh, formed outside of a school area, and they just put up tents, and the people congregated there. In Sri Lanka, there was a larger effort that was uh, many people in a camp where they lived for months, and also in Bangladesh. So the church can sometimes help with the housing. Often this is an area where the NGOs or the government may step in as well. Another immediate need is for water. The estimate is that in an emergency situation, the average water need is from 18, 8 to 15 liters per person per day. What are some Ways to, what are some ways to get water that aren't listed here? Many times, pardon me? Okay, filtered or boiled. What's a challenge to boiling water? Fuel supply. Uh, sometimes the government will bring in large truckloads of water or large supplies of water. Usually in a rainy season, one of the most easiest methods is catchment of water off of the roofs of building, and they can get a large amount that way. Why would they want to raise their well? Why do they want the platform up higher on their well? That's so the, the water doesn't become contaminated by the flood water, by the gray water that's there. SODIS is a very effective approach. It's solar disinfection of water. Why might not that work during a, a time of flooding? <laughs> Too rainy. doesn't work at all when it's rainy. So one of the ways 
one of the needs is to investigate what's the best source of water. And some of this can be done prior to the disaster, making preparations beforehand so that they're ready. Another need is for food. And here again, the church can often be very effective immediately. They may not have vast supplies of food, but the church members can share what they have in the two or three days that it takes the NGOs to become mobilized. They uh, can give out emergency food or emergency supplies. One system that works well in order to prevent dependency in the long run is to ask the members who are living in that tent city, in that displaced area, to contribute some community work in exchange for their food. And they can be digging the latrines or helping to cook the food or helping to clean up. And so that gives them a sense of worth and also helps to prevent dependency. Many different types of sanitation after a disaster. The most basic, which we often used in the, were used in the Philippines, were just trench latrines, just shallow trenches, which could then be filled in. Um, more elaborate form were pit latrines. But that becomes a real basic need. Why, why is sanitation so crucial after a disaster? What's happened in, in Haiti now? What's the secondary disaster that we've had there? A cholera. So maintaining good sanitation, good hygiene is critical because when people are grouped together in a small area with contagious diseases, infections spread rapidly from person to person. Okay. Another issue, other than these, meeting these basic needs, where the churches can be involved after disaster is that they can receive training in basic health care. In this case, we were in the area. They asked for a team from the United States to come. We worked there, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be a disaster relief team. This is something that local people, if there's a local community health evangelism or another area where people have already been trained, they can share their skills. And they learned basic health care, first aid, hygiene, water skills, counseling. Most of them were already strong in evangelism and discipleship. And they took their training every morning in a very interactive, participatory form. So those who received the training in the mornings spent their afternoons out in the communities, out by that school where the tent city was set up for the displaced people. And they spent their afternoons giving basic health teaching to the people of the community. Uh, you can see them demonstrating hand washing here. Uh, we use a soda bottle to demonstrate diarrhea and the need for rehydration. What, what myth is there often in developing countries if somebody has diarrhea? What's the common teaching given? Stop drinking water, Stop drinking water that'll make the diarrhea worse. 
So we're trying to demonstrate here the risk of dehydration. And so our goal in this case was not just to teach these people, but we wanted to give them skills that they could share with their neighbors, with the people around them. And each time, alongside the physical training, the people reached out to the displaced people individually, alongside the health care in small groups. Um, and they returned in the evening with the Jesus film. And we saw many, many people come to Christ. And the church made the commitment that this wasn't just uh, one week or a few days time when they were going to work with these people. They continued with their home visits. Even after the people started to return to their homes out in the community, the church continued to visit them. They saw many new families come to the church. They continued with the follow-up and discipleship. There had to be a shift from these emergency skills to the ongoing recovery. How do we restore our home? How do we get back to work? How can we rebuild our community after it's been destroyed? They worked together to form a local committee to help decide on the priority. And this involves building more community ownership. At first, a lot of the training or a lot of the help may come from the outsiders. But now the NGOs and the governance support are starting to wane. The people need to learn to make their own decisions, to move ahead on their own. Not only in recovering from that disaster, but in what steps can they prevent in the future so they're no longer at risk or so that they have higher capacities. Those who were trained shared their skills with others, and they went to nearby communities. And this can lead to the development of a community health ministry or community health evangelism. So, which stages can the church and the community be involved in? They can be involved in each of these stages, from the acute response to a disaster, to the recovery and community development, to reducing their vulnerability and their risks in the future, and being prepared for future disasters. As a result, if the church and community are involved, that leads to less damage from the hazard, more community ownership, and less dependency over time, and a stronger, more resilient community. Now, here are some resources. A lot of the materials that came into this preparation and a lot of the thoughts on how the church can be involved came out of Tear Fund, and they put together a series of resources. With our community health evangelism, we distill ideas from lots of locations, lots of sources, and converted into forms that can be used in the communities at a basic level, at a third or fourth grade level. And these are two of the manuals that can be downloaded from the Internet. I have a gift for each of you, for anyone who wants it. Here's a gift certificate if you'd like to 
download one of these manuals for free, talk to one of us, and we'll give you a, and it'll have a link to where you can download. And this is just a bibliography, which you don't need right now. Let me stop here and see what kind of questions there are. Thank you. Let there be light. I'm afraid I'm too plugged in to go answer too many, turn off too many light switches. What questions do you have? Yes. kind of one of our hardest situations. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you think? Oh, okay. I just, you know, wondered if you kind of had any suggestions for, you know, kind of giving them, like, a loving nudge to, you know, and, and encouraging them that, you know, I guess maybe empowering people that they can't really, like, handle that that's a country that starts out with extreme poverty and that's received relief for decades. And so in Haiti, many people are already accustomed to receiving, and they've gotten into that mindset. What I would do in Haiti, if at possible, is we have strong teams already working in many areas of Haiti, and these teams can demonstrate the success that they've had, the impact that they have, that this isn't an impossible situation. There are things that we can do to improve our lives. But I agree, Haiti's a, one of the most difficult situations. John. Can you give us some examples of things that you have seen people do that were markedly unhelpful? Okay. <laughs> well, I can give an... Haiti is a perfect example of this. An action that had good motivation, but had difficult responses. In Haiti, there were a number of small clinics already functioning in these areas where the, where the earthquake hit. And those clinics tried for a period of a few weeks immediately after the disaster to give free care. But they couldn't afford to do that forever. And meanwhile the outside organizations came in giving free medical care, giving free medications, giving everything for free. And as a result, many of the clinics that were already in Haiti went out of business. They couldn't compete with the wealthy organizations that had the resources to give everything for free. So in that case, part, what could we have done differently? Yes, the people have an immediate need, but we need to work to build up their resources, build up their clinics, build up the local existing sources of health care, not just take over and do it for them. Sure. I was in Japan this summer, and one of the things that I saw was challenging is just networking between different organizations. Okay. Because there are many different groups doing things, but and one of the biggest challenges in disaster relief is how do you coordinate your efforts? How do you find an area where there's true need 
either a geographic area or a skill where you can provide work. 64 people aren't already doing it because there's no point in duplicating services. And that's a big, big need. I don't have an easy answer for that one, but, but I see. What we've done often is the teams tend to go to an area where there's already a church because that's where we have contacts, that's where we have connections and leaderships where they probably know what health services are available. And we try to go to a church or an area where other people aren't already concentrating. And those would be two of the criteria that we would use. Anything else? I don't know enough about that to answer the question. Let me ask the rest of you. Do you have, we've, we have that in terms of our community health evangelism ministries, what we tried to do very hard in the Philippines, and which probably would have been preferable, would be if there was already a team there in place, then we don't have to necessarily send a team from the United States. What other examples do you know? Does anybody else have any examples of a church, I mean an NGO working alongside a church in a disaster response situation? Sounds like a... It's one of the big critiques I've heard of local pastors that the NGO comes in and they sort of call the shots. Right. No, I don't know of that, and that's a tremendous need. And that's why we're kind of, this is more of a model that we're exploring than it is an established procedure that's been done many times. Because we have to hand the ownership back to the church, back to the community. There are things that we as outsiders, as gringos can do, just because we have the resources but we don't want to rob the leadership and the initiative from them. So my rule of thumb is anything that they can do, our role should be to, to build them up. And we only step in in those skills which aren't available locally. And that's, that's a basic 
principle of our community health evangelism, we don't move into a community and start doing things. The time that you spend getting to know the local pastor, the local champion, the local leaders, how, why does that pay off in the long time? It makes it sustainable because we're not really so interested in what happens just over this six-month period of time. We want them to be able to continue to use the skills and abilities that they've learned. Very good. Anybody else? We have done that, yes. In the Philippines was one of the, that was in the end of November of 2009, that the team went and that was their focus. We're going to focus on community development. Other people are already doing well, the health clinics and some of the other acute needs. Our focus was going to be here. And it's been done a little bit since that time period. We had very strong response. The church members were thrilled. The church attendance grew tremendously, and we saw a real impact on the communities where we were working. Yeah. I just had a quick question about you. Um, you spoke in Spanish at the beginning. Um, so what, um, have you ever worked with any Spanish-speaking countries? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Vivo en Cihuatanejo, México, y funcioné por muchos años como la coordinadora regional de México visitando a las, los países de, y la, las comunidades de México, Centroamérica y el Caribe. Okay. I worked, I live in southern Mexico, and I worked with Medical Ambassadors International as the regional director, our titles kept changing, for Mexico and the Caribbean. And so I worked in a number of different countries. And I still am able to visit those countries. My specialty is really working with children's in a children's community health evangelism ministry. So, that, so that's fun. All right. Um, what about Bangladesh? So that's a country where it's known to have disaster all the time because of the flooding? It has recurrent flooding. And so the question there is how can we mobilize these communities to take the disaster preparedness steps that won't completely prevent the flooding, but it'll mean that they're better able to cope when it comes. And so sometimes disasters come out of the blue, and there's not much you can do. But in a situation like Bangladesh, you know that you're vulnerable. John? Absolutely. I should have added that to the list. So part of what you're doing, dealing with always, and we discuss this in relationship to Haiti. Haiti would be an equivalent situation in some ways. Is what's the worldview of the people? Do they believe that they can take a step that's going to make a difference? Or do they say, what happens will happen. We're all doomed to die anyways. There's very little I can do. And that's a very important step. Let me not keep you because you've got other things to go. If anyone has any questions, I'll be here. Make sure you pick up your free coupons to get the download of the. Here you go. I don't have many, but. Well, I have a question for you. Sure. I had 
actually playing about going to Nicaragua to work okay. with children outside of the garbage dump. Okay. Have you ever done anything in Nicaragua? We have a very strong community health evangelism okay. ministry in Nicaragua uh -huh. led by Roger Pavon. If you write to me, I also have, uh, let me give you, write to me, okay, and I'll get you connected up with him. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And so we do, I've worked in garbage dump communities yeah. outside of Mexico City, yeah. and we're also developing a ministry working with children, because we find many times that yeah. the children are the ones who learn the quickest. Yeah, I'm actually going to be working um, at a feeding center probably outside of the garbage dump with the children. Okay, so we have a yeah. lot of training materials okay. for children. If you look downstairs at our Global Chain Network booth, you'll see some examples of those manuals that we're okay. giving out. So what did you work on I'm in charge of curriculum development, but I also get to go different places. So I've been to the... I mean, we do everything. Some of it I don't do, but it's everything from agriculture to health skills to Bible storing to uh, women cycle of life, women, prenatal care for women. You may. Thank you so much. Okay. Did you enjoy it? Good. Well, I can. I need to know. I'm just getting involved with So this is just a different approach, but... Uh, yeah, and I stand